This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Carrie Patel discusses her new book, The Buried Life. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot reveals some fast-growing small presses. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. Rose, do you want to go fiction first, or should we uh, dip into nonfiction? Oh, I'm happy to, to take it from the top with fiction. Um, we right. have a, a new number two, which is Prodigal Son by Danielle Steele. She is always reliably on the bestseller list. No surprises there. Um, she is, uh, as we say in our review, she's nearing the publishing century mark. She's put out nearly 100 books, uh, wow. which uh, really helped to define the women's fiction genre. Um, it's, a, it's a blend of plot, problematic romance and family issues with a bit of suspense. However, we say uh, that this particular book is rather contrived um, and that readers should be prepared for revelations of wickedness on a vast scale in a family melodrama that only dedicated Danielle Steele fans are likely to find of much interest. But she certainly does have those dedicated fans. Um, This sold 28,000 copies its first week out. So uh, no, no small shakes there. And 100 books. That's yeah, she's she's number. coming up on that, and like <laughs> these are not small books, right? Exactly, as a hundred full sized, solid hardcover books, right? Good for her. Yeah. So at number four, we have Jeffrey Archer's Mightier Than the Sword. This is the uh, the fifth book in the Clifton Chronicles of uh, suspense novels, and um, you know, pretty much part of the series. That won't be any surprise to. Uh, to anyone who's read them, you know, lots of spies and investigations uh, in in set in England, and um, you know, it's it's one for the series fans, and that's at number four. Um, moving down a little bit on the list, Joanne Fluke's Double Fudge Brownie Murder. Um, it's really rare to see what I think of as a cozy mystery this high up on uh, the the hardcover bestseller list because usually they come out in paperback but uh, this one you know even though it's a, a sort of cozy mystery with recipes and everything uh, it's out there in hardcover it's selling very well and it's the 18th book in the Hannah Swenson mystery series uh, after Blackberry Pie Murder so it oh, basically wow. if you're into desserts and death this is the series for you uh, Hannah Swenson is a baker in Lake Eden, Minnesota, um, and this time she's a murder suspect, so she's solved plenty of crimes in the past, but can she clear her own name? So there's a big surprise ending, plus you know nearly 20 new recipes, uh, everything that uh, Joanne Fluke's fans have come to want and expect. Now, I know that this is our cookbook uh, month. Uh, uh, we have the big cookbook feature, and this is a cozy, as you said, that, that has the elements of cooking and food in it. Are there many cozies or other mysteries that, that 
that uh, that deal with cooking or have food as a uh, subject? There really are. Um, now, I'm not an expert in, in mysteries, and the pe- person we should talk to about this is our mystery reviews editor, Peter Cannon, but I've certainly seen a great many books with food puns in the title, for sure, sure. <laughs> and, uh, and in the romance field and in women's fiction as well, you also see books with themed recipes that are included. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's just a thing. I think at some point someone went, wait, women read these books right. and women like to cook. So why don't we? And um, they just, they, it was, if you will forgive me saying this, two great tastes that taste great together. Oh, <laughs> I'm glad you said it. Someone had to. <laughs> Someone had to. Um, and just a little bit uh, further down the list, I just wanted to point out a couple of tie-in titles because it's interesting to see how these, uh, how well these do on the list. Um, at number 24 is the Marvel Encyclopedia, the definitive latest edition. Um, Marvel's 75th anniversary is a big deal. Uh, obviously, the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, with the Avengers movies and all their associated films is very, very big right now and so it's a great time to be updating and revising the marvel encyclopedia and then there's also a graphic novel um a collection actually of three three issues of comics based on avatar the last airbender um and this one's notable because they're annotations by jean luen yang uh, who's a wonderful graphic novel creator um, probably best known for his autobiographical work american-born chinese um so it's a it's a big deal to see a name like his associated uh, with tie-in comics like this, which are tied into the popular television show. Uh, So uh, just a a little bit of an example of really how diverse the fiction is, the the fiction field is. And it's, it's nice to see books like that pop up on the bestseller list. Oh, sure. And so looking over at uh, our nonfiction list, we have at number three, something that uh, is, I, I think we you, know, you see in the newspapers, uh, people write about it. It's called Future Crimes. Everything is connected. Everyone is vulnerable and what we can do about it. Uh, it's written by Mark Goodman, who's a cybersecurity consultant, and he argues that our ever-expanding networks of digital services with insecure software leaves us vulnerable to hackers. So uh, in our review, we say there's a tinge of dystopian paranoia here, but if a fraction of what Goodman forecast comes true, then this is a timely wake-up call. And this is at number three. Uh, moving down at number six is a uh, memoir by uh, Kim Gordon, who's a founding member of Sonic Youth, which is one of my favorite bands. Uh, the book is called Girl in a Band, and uh, here she she talks about uh, uh, growing up uh, Los Angeles, you're going from Los Angeles music scene to the New York music scene, and her 27-year marriage to the bandmate Thurston Moore. Um, and she also talks about the separation. And uh, we say that although Gordon includes expected list of celebrities she met throughout life, her unique sensibility never fades. I mean, um, and this is at number six. Uh, number seven, we have a couple of... Uh, uh, maybe like self-help books coming up, the next several uh, on the list. Uh, This is called 
effortless healing, nine simple ways to sidestep illness, shed excess weight, and help your body fix itself uh, by Dr. Joseph Mercolia. Uh, and so that's at number seven. Uh, moving on, and the uh, t- subtitle is kind of self-explanatory. We actually have two books here uh, from Hay House, which is uh, one of the smaller publishers. And I just want to talk about both of those. They're both self-help books. One of them is called Goddesses Never Age, The Secret Prescription for Radiance, Vitality, and Well-Being by uh, uh, Christiane Northrup. Um, and this is uh, at number 12. And then further down at number 27 is The Fear Cure, Cultivating Courage as Medicine for the Body, Mind, and Soul. So we've got a couple of self-help kinds of books there. Um, and along those lines, we have Spring Chicken, uh, Stay Young Forever or Die Trying by Bill Gifford. He's a correspondent for Outside Magazine. Uh, and he says in this book, I wanted to know everything about aging, this universal but still little understood process. Uh, and to this end, he, he interviews a lot of people from scientists to fringe figures to doctors who are involved with hormone therapies or, or supporting radical diets. And uh, we say that he does acknowledge there's no cure for aging, but his core message, use it or lose it, is a common sense piece of advice anyone can find useful. So we've got a bunch of uh, books here that, that kind of want to stop the aging process. And it seems like people are buying it and want to stop it too. That's fascinating. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like that's a suddenly new trend. I haven't heard you talking about any books on the list lately that, that have fallen into that particular niche of stay young forever. But obviously it's something that's obsessed people forever. Right, exactly. Even the uh, the fountain of youth in Florida. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Searching for that, and that's about it on our nonfiction list. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Carrie Patel tells us how she wrote a murder mystery in a future that feels like the past. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Brandon Sanderson, author of the Reckoner series, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Carrie Patel on the line. Her new book is The Buried Life. Hi, Carrie. So glad you could join us. Thank you. It's great to be here. So this book is a subterranean mystery of the future. Tell us about it. Well, it takes place in an underground city uh, and in a time when people are living underground more for social reasons than out of necessity. It's sort of a post-post-apocalyptic novel. Um, it's, not, it's not one of those situations where the surface is dangerous and people can no longer go there, uh, but because people have moved underground after an unforeseen catastrophe and are still living there now, um, it, it's more something that's a matter of habit and a matter of culture. So this is the civilization that springs up um, around that, and it's a rather hierarchical society. So uh, the murder that takes place is the murder of a historian, and his history is a restricted subject in this city. It causes a lot of unusual problems for the investigators who are trying to solve the murder, and they learn a lot of things about the history of their city and of their world uh, that, uh, that that will end up changing a lot of things for the city. So what is, you said that they live underground for social reasons, not necessarily out of necessity. What is that? Well, so the, the backstory to the novel is that, you know, people moved underground in the, in the wake of a catastrophe that isn't 
entirely specified. Um, and the, the setting of the novel and the concerns of the characters aren't really about what happened, you know, hundreds of years ago. It's what's happening in this new world that they live in, and it's their everyday reality. Um, and again, it's it's the civilization that springs up, you know, after after the worst of what's happened has gone away. And so it's sort of got a little bit of a Victorian twist on it. Um, it's very mannered, um, and it's you know, it's it's not like a living in a bunker. It's, it's just the city that happens to have been constructed underground at this point, and it's you know very normal to all of the characters. So blocking the study of history is uh, a pretty popular way of controlling a populace. So it's it's something that's done by by dictators, by colonizers. What was the idea behind choosing that particular method of social control? I think uh, for the characters themselves, you know, they're concerned about what happened hundreds of years ago to lead to this, uh, you know, vast breakdown in society. And so for them, you know, they're concerned about the spread of problematic information that, you know, toppled governments, destroyed civilizations, and, you know, sent everybody underground in the first place. And so they're more concerned about, you know, keeping, letting those things stay buried and moving forward in, you know, what's their city today. Um, as an as an author, I simply thought that was a really interesting way to set up a lot of mysteries and uh, to to try to create a world that was, you know, it's I guess had a had a unique character and that left a lot to be discovered. So, could you describe to us the city of is it Recoleta and and where is it and and just give us a little how you've described it in the book? Sure. So, as I mentioned, it's got sort of a neo Victorian flair to it. It um. It is underground. It is it is set in, I guess, an alternate future of our world, um, and it's uh, it's got a lot of caverns, but also a lot of architecture that's been built into the city. It's one thing that was very interesting to me is you know looking at kind of pictures of spaces that have been built underground and that have a very unique sense of positive and negative space, and you know what. I guess the way you would normally think of inside and outside space is no longer the same because in a way everything's inside. Um, it's, you know, divided into districts and it's laid out vertically as much as it is horizontally. Um, and, you know, you have on the one hand these, you know, big, wide, firelit passages in some of the nicer parts of town and then in the factory districts and in the poor parts of town you have these very small claustrophobic sort of warrens um, where the air, you know, space is very tight and, you know, the air is really cloudy with, you know, fumes and torch smoke. Um, and it's, you know, it's certainly a reflection of the conditions that people are living in there. And again, with a very stratified society. So could you tell us a little bit about Lucelle Malone? She's the main character. She's the inspector. So she's, like you said, she's the, she's the inspector. She's the detective who is sent to in, initially investigate the murder of this historian. Um, I realize that, you know, there are a lot of tropes about, you know, sort of the all black, you know, inspector wearing all black, with a long trench coat and, you know, very competent, kicking down doors. Um, and I guess she's sort of a riff on that. But I wanted to also create someone who who has those traits, but is still there's something empty about her. And part of her journey as a character is kind of realizing that. Um, and it sets her up in opposition to one of the other perspective characters, Jane, um, 
who isn't necessarily as competent and prepared as Malone, but who has um, a much more vivid sense of herself and is much more comfortable with who she is. Um, and so for Malone, I think sort of discovering some rather unsettling details about the history of her city and kind of, you know, what the secrets that lie that nobody else can see is sort of also about discovering some uncomfortable truths about herself and about, you know, what's missing for her as a person. So what makes Malone tick? Well, she likes, she likes order. Um, she's, you know, she's used to certain routines. She's very competent. She's, you know, risen in the ranks and, um, you know, she, but she's used, she's not used to things being out of the ordinary necessarily. And, um, you know, having to investigate this case where suddenly, you know, the bureaucrats and the the ringleaders of the city are, you know, putting up roadblocks is unusual for her. Um, and I think, you know, I think she's she's fundamentally opposed to this idea that, you know, that she is a, that she is the inspector is not allowed to um, not allowed to understand what her victim was studying, um, the people he worked with, is you know. It's something that she has a lot of problems with, and it's something that she has to learn to overcome. And one of the people that she interviews in this process is a is a laundress. It sounds to me like there's a lot in here about class tensions. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So Jane Lynn is the laundress, and she's the other perspective character. Um, her personality is pretty different from Malone's, even though the two of them actually get along pretty well. Um, and I think whereas, you know, Malone is, Malone is searching for information, and her stakes in the case are that, you know, this is her career, this is her job, um, and she wants to understand what's going on in her city. You know, for Jane, it's very personal, and she's sort of, she's stuck between, you know, on the one hand, these inspectors who want to know more about some of her clients, who are these very wealthy and very powerful city leaders in Recoleta. And, uh, you know, Jane's also stuck between wanting to, you know, stay in her clients' good graces, but also protect herself when she stumbled across some, um, I guess, rather inconvenient information for her, you know, for her to have, uh, and cooperating with the, with the inspectors. And so she has to look out for herself, realizing that, you know, she can't really be entirely certain that anybody else is genuinely concerned about her well-being. This book was originally slated to come out in the U.S. last August. Uh, why was it delayed until now? Well, as uh, you may know, Angry Robot was sold in the second half of last year, and I think the uh, the sale, all the things that set that in motion started coming out around last July, as far as I was told. And so it was it was actually just a couple weeks before the original release date uh, that I was told that you know they were actually going to have to delay the book. Um, they were getting acquired. They you know the details of the, the sale had not been finalized yet, but hopefully they would be soon. Um, and in the meantime, you know, I, I couldn't say why it was delayed and I couldn't really say when it was going to be released. So uh, the goal was just to, you know, keep everything progressing as smoothly as possible and hope that we had a, a new date, you know, to reveal pretty shortly. So it must be a big relief for you to finally be able to hold it in your hands. Was it published in the UK in the meantime or was that delayed too? That was delayed too. So now, you know, half a year later, you, you, get, to, you get to have a book. It, I do. It's very exciting. And you've got the second book uh, with Inspector Malone coming out uh, in July. Did you originally intend to write a series? 
first one with the idea that it could be a standalone or could be part of a series. Um, it, it ends with a sense of closure for the main characters, but there's certainly a setup of something bigger going on. And so, you know, like any good first-time author, I thought, well, if I, if I get to sell this, we'll just see what the publisher says. And so when I originally sent the manuscript for The Buried Life to Angry Robot, you know, they took a look at it, and um, at some point they came back and said, hey, so do you have plans for a sequel? And I thought, well, the right answer to that question is yes, I do. <laughs> and so I sent them the outline, and we went from there. So tell us how the idea of this book came to you. I mean, what, what had you been writing before, and how long were you working on this book? The Buried Life was really my first serious attempt at a novel. Um, I was in college at the time, and, you know, I scribbled a few stories and a little bit of poetry. Um, and I always wanted to write a novel, but I just, I didn't have an idea that really stuck for me and that I felt committed enough to, to you know, really see it through for 90,000 words. Um, I got the idea on a study trip to Argentina. And in the city of Buenos Aires, there's a famous district called Recoleta with a famous cemetery. And it's, it's kind of like the cemeteries you see in New Orleans. It has um, all of these really lovely above-ground mausoleums, and they're all they're very tightly packed. And when I was walking around, it was such an incredible sight. It looked almost like this miniature city. And so I think that, and then a very long 20-hour bus ride that I was on from um, a different part of Argentina back to the city, just gave me a lot of time to finally start thinking about, oh, well, you know, what would this place be like? And what kind of characters would live there? And what sort of trouble would they get into together? And so that was really the genesis of it. And I'd say the first draft probably was took about a year to complete. Um, and then, as you know, any other writer knows, the real work is going back and turning that draft into into something publishable. And so that was an on and off process for several years of, picking it up, taking a look at it, making some changes and revisions, and putting it back again and then coming to it again with fresh eyes. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors. And conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Carrie Patel, author of The Buried Life, who is telling us about how her travels had helped her to put together the final form of this book. Um, so you were raised in Houston, Texas. You studied abroad. As you mentioned, you went to Spain, Granada, Argentina. What brought you to those countries? Well, I was studying Spanish at the time. So, you know, it was a great place to try to uh, brush up on my language skills. But I've, I've always really enjoyed travel. And, you know, maybe it's one of the same reasons that I love speculative fiction is I just, you know, enjoy visiting new places, seeing new cultures, um, you know, and just ex- experiencing another side of life, you know, and meeting, meeting all the people around it. And so, um, you know, I personally, personally felt that study abroad would be a great opportunity, um, not only from the language perspective, but also to, you know, just, I guess, get out of the country and get to see something else and, um, it, it just seemed like a really great part of the college experience, and I'm certainly very glad that I did it. 
So you said that you uh, you were studying Spanish. That that was your major in college. It was my minor. So how how has uh, the study of different languages and different cultures helped to develop uh, these fictional cultures for your book? I think it I think it helps give you a sense of the details and of how to flush those things out. You know, I think when you're when you're inventing a new culture for a book or a story, I think it's easy to kind of look at the big picture and say, you know, okay, well, this is, you know, a warring, a warring nomadic civilization. And, you know, they, they go from one place to another and then they conquer. Um, but then you, you have to drill down into the details and say, okay, well, how else does that express itself? Like, you know, what would your material culture be if you're always on the move? What kinds of things, you know, do you build your, for yourself? What kinds of, you know, places do you seek shelter, and how does that influence uh, social roles? Like, you know, are there strict gender divisions of labor? Is this a very egalitarian society? Um, and I, I think just having, learning to develop a cohesive sense of a culture and, you know, how one aspect of it influences and interacts with another, I think that's something that you certainly get an appreciation for uh, in travel. And well, in in light of that, tell us a little bit about what you thought about Granada. I loved it. It's a fascinating city. Um, it's it's sort of a crossroads in Spain. It's you know obviously it's a Spanish city now, but it has um, an amazing history. Is you know one of the last more strongholds in Europe, and um, it's you know got the Alhambra, obviously, which you know which is still in fantastic shape and is, a, is an amazing building to visit from you know, a much older era, and you've got districts like the Albicene, and they, they all have just a very unique, um, a unique sense of place, a unique look to them, and, you know, a lot of ties to this very, very history that Granada has. And as a sort of a medium-sized college town, too, it's, it's certainly a very lively place uh, to be as a student. So, in several of your reviews, uh, your book, we compare you to Agatha Christie, including our own review, in which we say you have the flair for the subtle conundrum. Uh, did you read a lot of Christie when, when you were growing up, or even more recently? I did not, but I'm flattered by the comparison. Um, you know, I've seen some of the, the theatrical versions of her work, but I haven't actually read any of it just yet. And can you talk a little bit about the authors who have influenced you, both on the mystery side and on the speculative fiction side, and also you know other media? If there are uh, movies or music um, that really uh, got you thinking in these directions, sure. I so I mean, even though I haven't read Agatha Christie, I do tend to really love speculative fiction that has a mystery element to it. Um, I think there's something about you know creating a new world with all these conundrums built into it, um, that when you can, you know, devise a plot that gives you a way to explore it, I think that's a lot, that's always been a lot of fun for me as a reader. Uh, I think David Brin's Sundiver is a great example of that, and I know that, you know, the intersection of, you know, mystery and speculative fiction is something he's talked a bit about. Um, and I guess as far as, you know, world building goes, uh, I love China Mayville. Um, he creates, you know, his, uh, City of New Crobazon just has such a distinctive flavor. It's you know it it it's sort of got that gritty Victorian feeling, um, but at the same time it's it's unique. And he finds really interesting ways to build in uh, 
you know, some of the fantastical elements into, you know, into his society and its plot. And there are, you know, horrific things like remaking where, you know, as punishment, people have their bodies physically altered. Um, you know, and it's, it's also, it's also a very sort of secretive, secretive society where, um, you know, where there's a, a pretty big division between the top of society and the bottom. I love him. Um, Sherry Priest is fantastic. Um, Tim Akers wrote a wonderful book called Heart of Veridon, which I loved, and which, you know, again, also sort of took the pseudo-steampunk uh, Victorian flavor and did something very unique with it, and something that, again, ties in the fantastical elements in a pretty interesting and compelling way. So a lot of the appeal of steampunk is getting to rewrite the past, but um, you put it in this uh, more futuristic setting. Uh, is there uh, how how are you playing around with concepts of past and future there, and and what drove that decision? Well, a central concern of the novel is obviously uh, how you look at history, and you know how you look at a history that someone else has maybe hidden or redefined in a certain way, and so. You know, even though the novel takes place in the future, um, there's certainly a deep concern with history. Um, I think, you know, I, I think for me, writing about a fictional future setting as opposed to one in the past, I feel like it gives me a little bit more license to construct the world in the way I want and to sort of build the, the events that, I, that I'm interested in building. Um, but, you know, I, I think there are a lot of interesting parallels between, again, this idea of secrecy and the fact that you have this entire civilization that built the city underground. Um, and, you know, again, that you've got, you've got kind of this, this very rigid social structure with, again, very rigid restrictions on who's allowed to know what. And so within these worlds that you've created, uh, how do you put the characters in there? Um, for instance, Inspector Malone or, or any of the others. I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you use as, as inspiration for them? I, I guess it's hard to say where that comes from. At the end, I just I like to have a cast of people who will, I guess, interact and conflict with each other in meaningful ways. Um, I think as far as Malone and Jane go as the two perspective characters, I was most interested in seeing how the two of them interacted with the same characters very differently and used the same situations very differently. And in fact, um, there's one character called named Roman Arnault who, uh, you know, Jane has one relationship with him and Malone has an extremely antagonistic relationship with him. And I think it, it brings out a lot about all three of the characters just to see you know, how they interact, uh, you know, where, where they come together and where they diverge. And, you know, as you mentioned, since they come from very different social settings, too, uh, I think that gives, that gives them different perspectives on the events. And so, yeah, I, I think it's just that, that sense of variety and that sense of tension between everyone coming from someplace different is interesting to me. So how long do you see the series going on? I mean, in, in, with contemporary mystery series, it's possible to write one person's investigations for 20 or 30 books. Do you, do you think of it as uh, heading in, in that direction and more of a mystery direction? Or are you more following the, the traditional science fiction path of uh, a trilogy and then move on to something else? I really see this as a trilogy. Um, I think the the very life is certainly set up as a mystery, but there's something else going on 
uh, within it that becomes clear by the end. And the second book, Cities and Thrones, takes off from that standpoint, and it is definitely not a mystery. Um, I, I like the mystery set up as a way to begin this story of Recoletta and the characters who live there. Um, but I, I see this as kind of a, a finite saga that shows how these people evolved and how this very strange world of theirs evolved with them. Thinking about the book um, reminds me a lot of City of Stairs by Robert Jackson Bennett, which is another uh, novel that came out last year um, that was about uh, the study of history and um, strange sort of post-apocalyptic spaces and the ways that um, a murder mystery plot lets the reader sort of ride along and learn about a culture. Um, Did you read that book by any chance? I did. I loved it. Um, what, what do you see as, as sort of driving the stories, stories like that happening right now, being popular right now? Do, are there are these touching on wider cultural issues? Well, I mean, I feel part of it is probably that you know, mystery plot is always fun. Um, you know, I, I guess you could you could probably say that there's you know a big a big draw between this idea that you know we're fascinated with hidden history as a um, as, as a plot, you know, when we have a lot of controversies in, you know, our own world that, that deal with, you know, who should know what. There's, you know, obviously the Edward, Edward Snowden issue and, um, you know, quite a few others. Like, what should we know? What do we want to know? Um, what is it safe for us to know? And I, I think these are certainly relevant questions. Um, and, you know, I think even City of Stairs, as you mentioned, it's you know, it's a mystery, but I think even more than discovering the murders and, you know, learning learning about exactly what happened, it's, it's really about that hidden history and what responsibility do you have to reveal it, to hide it, and how, how do you be responsible with something like that? So obviously, um, your experience as a debut author was not uh, 100% ideal with your book being delayed, uh, which is a thing that happens. But uh, do you have any advice for uh, authors kind of just getting their start and people who might end up in the same position, how to get through it? I think just, you know, I have this weird balance between optimism and pessimism that I've found very useful. Um, you know, all the, the wonderful things that have happened, you know, getting getting published, um, getting, you know, some wonderful reviews like the one in Publishers Weekly. You know, I, I try to take all those things as fantastic surprises. Um, but, you know, there's just so much that's out of your control. And, you know, having the delay was certainly one of those things. Um, but at the end of it, you know, I kept telling myself, well, it hasn't been canceled, you know, and Angry Robot is still a viable publisher. They're just, you know, getting acquired by somebody else. And I, I think that really helped me keep things in perspective. And working on working on new projects does, too. I think it's very easy to get, you know, focused on the thing you've got in your hands, the thing you're shopping around. Uh, but if you've got something else that you're working on as well, I think that, that broadens your perspective and it makes it, you know, a little easier to relax when it comes to the fate of your first book. So I, I imagine you are now at some point in the uh, editing or copy editing of The City and Thrones, your, your next book. Um, uh, what else are you working on now? You were, you were saying that it's, you're keeping busy with writing. Well, I 
I work actually write for a living. I uh, work for a game studio called Obsidian Entertainment, and so we've got an RPG coming out called Pillars of Eternity uh, that'll actually be out at the end of this month. So that's been very exciting too. Um, but on my own writing time, so yes, Cities and Thrones is undergoing edits, and there was actually another project that I'd started on about the time that I sold shortly before I sold The Buried Life. Um, I guess it's, it's temporary called, temporarily called The Colony, but it is a novel about uh, corporate Mars colonization and the Bear Branches use of Indian China. And Bear Branches is this concept of having, uh, percentage-wise, significantly more ma- males than females in a society, and it's often the result of sex-selective abortions. And so I wanted to look at you know, kind of these populations and what you do when you have this, you know, this huge gender imbalance, which is correlated with all kinds of instability um, and, you know, social issues, you know, what, like what would happen if you had all these youths and then you had this, this Mars colony that, um, you know, that's being developed, not, you know, for, again, corporate purposes. So tell us a little bit about the games writing and um, how that feeds back and forth with the novel writing. I'm starting to hear about more and more authors who are also writing for games in one regard or another. Well, it's it's a lot of fun. So games writing can be a lot of different things. You know, you have some games that are very text-heavy and you have some games that are told, you know, that tell their stories mostly visually. Um, Obsidian is known for a lot of RPGs and our, our games tend to have a lot of dialogue and a lot of text. It's a very kind of classical approach to RPGs and it, it sort of harkens back to some of the tabletop experiences um, that a lot of people have, you know, when they're sitting around with a, you know, a group of people and, you know, sort of telling the story together and having these interactions between your characters and your party members is a really big part of the experience. Um, I found it a lot of fun to work in both media uh, one of the most interesting things is how how you tell a story that, you know, on the one hand has to have, you know, beginning, middle, and end, um, but also has to allow the player room to express herself and to express her preferences. You know, you can't define the protagonist always the way you, the way you do in a novel. Um, you have to allow this person to be any number of people um, who are, you know, progressing through the game for any number of reasons. And so having a certain degree of flexibility... And, you know, the, the idea that the choices you've made in the game have mattered, have made an impact on the world around you, uh, those are other things that you have to build in. And I think kind of having additional constraints when you start out, um, I think it's actually, I found it very helpful for the creative process because, you know, it sort of, it, it shows you kind of where you're headed a bit more clearly. Well, it sounds fascinating. And we'll definitely keep an eye out for the games you put out there as well as your future books. We've been talking with Carrie Patel, and you can find her book, The Buried Life, in stores right now. Carrie, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot tells us which small presses are thriving. So stay tuned. This is Graham McAllister, author of The Magician's Lie, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. 
Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to preview our feature on fast-growing small presses. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. Hi, Mark. Glad to be with you. Always nice to have you on the show. So um, this is a feature that's running in Monday's issue, and uh, we're giving our listeners a little bit of a sneak peek. Tell us about this uh, particular article. Well, it's something we've been doing for uh, you know, almost 20 years now, and what it does is highlights um, independent presses who have revenue of between 2 and $10 million, who have uh, shown steady growth uh, between 2012 and 2014, and it's always been um, a pretty much discussed and looked forward to article. So uh, as far as the presses, I mean, uh, you, we've obviously been looking at them, watching them over the, the course of the year. So what presses do you have? What, what, what ones are showing some fast growth now? Well, it's an interesting mix, and uh, it, it's always been that way. And as we point out in the article, they like, get there uh, in, uh, different ways. And the top one uh, this year is a company uh, called Callisto Media, which is based in Berkeley, and it has a, an interesting history. It, w- it was started in 2011 by a couple of guys with uh, Silicon Valley roots, and what they've done is uh, come up with algorithms. Uh, everybody in Silicon Valley, I'm sure, does that, and um, that they think can help to highlight uh, topics of consumer interest. Then they go out and find authors to write some books. I was uh, I was looking down the list and I noticed that one of the publishers we mentioned, Greenleaf Book Group, is a hybrid publisher. Um, so is that a, a fairly recent thing on this particular list to have a publisher who's doing both uh, traditional publishing and some self-publishing? It is relatively new, but they're they're not the first ones. Um, actually, last year we had uh, I believe it's called Oak Press by Bella Andrea. Um, and that was the first time she's actually a true self-publisher. And she had hit the list last year, um, had really, really strong growth, um, kind of reflective of that she was actually a relatively new startup <laughs> in starting her own business, so that helped. Um, so this year, you know, we have Greenleaf is on the list, and as uh, they told us, they think the uh, growing acceptance of hybrid and self-publishers has helped them grow even faster. And now that you know it's wider accepted by authors who are willing to go down that route. And they were selling to uh, airport retailers, which I did not know ever stocked um, any small presses at all. I guess I just, you know, I I, I go and uh, I see the usual mega bestsellers. I didn't realize there were indie books and small press books there. Well, it's one of the secrets, or not such a secret anymore, that all indie presses have in growing in that they really can't rely on the traditional bookstores as well as Amazon. Most of them really do try to find niche outlets where they um, where they can uh, get extra sales in. And as, as if you look through the course of... Um, the store, you'll find, you know, some other publishers mentioning stuff like Public Supermarket or Bed Bath to Beyond and, and and stores like that, where if you have a, a title that, you know, hits a particular market niche that, um, you know, you're going to do pretty well there. Just curious, uh, you know, looking at the list, 
in, in looking at previous year's list of fast-growing small presses, have there been any that have kind of shot up from small press and became medium-sized presses? Well, one of the happier days in my life, Mark, is when uh, they graduate into the, <laughs> the next rank. And like I said, we've been doing this for uh, probably about 20 years, and a lot have actually uh, grown up past that $10 million mark. One of the most recent and most notable Skyhorse um, publishing, that they were on there only for a couple of years um, before you know they, they outgrew the $10 million level. And a number of other companies on there um, have been acquired over the years. Uh, just, la- just this year, um, Cleese Press, which was uh, 19, uh, 2013, somebody on the list, was acquired by Start Media. Um, I was noticing that one of the publishers on the list, Verso Books, has offices of equal size in both New York and London. Uh, I was wondering if that's... Uh, kind of a thing that a lot of these small presses are doing is trying to look for growth on both sides of the Atlantic. Well, publishers have, in the United States in particular, have looked to grow overseas, especially as ebooks have made selling abroad, you know, a little bit easier. But I think one of the more interesting things about Verso is a lot of their growth last year was attributed to their uh, increased efforts in selling direct to consumers. Uh, they told us that about 16% of their overall revenue last year came from selling directly to consumers. And it's a trend I think we'll see uh, increase more and more over the years ahead uh, for both independent presses and some of the larger publishers. And so what are some of the surprise publishers on the list here? Give us a, maybe a little highlight of a couple of ones that caught your eye. Uh, well, for certain, uh, Callisto Media, the, the top one, uh, to be honest, I never heard of them <laughs> until, yeah. uh, until they applied uh, to get in. And, you know, their, um, their model is an interesting one. I mean, they're not the first company to think about, you know, trying to decipher what the topics are um, before going out to hire an author to do it. But, they, you know, they seem to uh, have done it pretty well, at least in their first year. And what's interesting, I mean, they've done a lot of books. I think it was over, let's see, over 56 um, in their, or 56 last year, which actually had fallen from 2013, um, because they, they were focusing more and more last year on um, long-form titles rather than just short-form titles. So obviously they were picking up some trends. But within the larger um, areas that they publish, they don't publish in anything too different. I mean, it's cookbooks, health, self-help, business. But they they look to um, pick out some of the faster-growing trends within those subject areas. And for instance, last year, a couple of their bigger books are Paleo for Every Day, Mindfulness, Made simple and memory tips and tricks, which I think uh, you know, kind of hit um, some particular niches. So, if this press is an indication of of other presses on there that you, you said they do a paleo book, seemingly you know more lifestyle books, is that the case with the other publishers on there, or do they do you have some that are doing uh, fiction or perhaps maybe serious nonfiction? Well, that's a good point, Mark, because most. The independent presses that hit the list um, do specialize in nonfiction. It's just uh, an easier um, way easier to go. Sale. 
yeah and and you can it's easier easier to sell into the stores especially if you grow up around you know a topic that you're really good at i mean you can really specialize really hone in on it you know greenleaf that does well in business books another company that's on the list morgan james does well in business books so it's it's are areas where you can, you know, develop a niche and actually become somewhat known for it. Um, having said that, uh, Pegasus uh, did hit the list this year, and they've hit it a couple of years in a row, I believe. And I know they have a nice mix. Um, I, th- I know you guys know them pretty well. Um, and they do a fair amount of fiction led by um, Camilla Lackberg, who is one of the, the prominent uh, Swedish authors um, who have done very well, you know, following in the footsteps of Stig Larsson. So, you know, Pegasus sort of mixes it up. And I would say for the of the, of the 12 companies we had on, on the list this year, they're probably the most, um, most diverse and most uh, embedded in, in the fiction area. Yeah, it's funny. I, I know Pegasus, and I for some reason I would have thought they were more of a midsize. But it's interesting. You know, it's great to know that they're doing well as a. You know, they're still a small publishing house, but we do get a lot of books from them. And that's one of the the publishers that I'm most familiar with on on that list there. And as you said, it's been on for a little while. Um, are any of them regional? Have Have any of them started as regional publishers that have gone on to uh, break out of the region? Well, it's interesting you're bringing that up. Um, in the past, you know, we have had a lot of regional um, presses that have, um, you know, hit the list and then kind of branched out. Um, but this year, it's it's really not um, too regional-oriented. And I think we've seen that fade away in the last few years. And, again, that might have something to do with, you know, your ability now to um, – to publish ebooks, you know, across the board for for anybody. I mean, if you can get it to England, you can get it to Iowa, I guess. Um, so that that is not um, the factor it used to be. Because uh, yeah, looking on the, the twelve here, I mean, they don't really do um, you know too many uh, regional titles. In fact, it's one of the more interesting trends in that over the years you've seen the publishers that hit the list become a little bit more diverse in terms of what they offer. I mean, in the old days, the, the trick had really been to really be narrow, you know, and just, you know, clobber the niche you're in. Um, but these days, you know, you can start somewhere, and like we said, you might be strong in business, but you also tend to have um, strengths in some other areas as well, and they're not quite as reliant on one category as they used to be. And another good sign for our little segment here is that two of the companies on here actually grew um, because of acquisitions. You know, we mentioned before the number of the companies that had been on the list had been acquired by larger companies in past years, but this year um, we had two companies, Turner Publishing and um, Fox Chapel, actually grew themselves by you know having the resources to go out and and buy um, some lists and um, a few of the smaller publishers to fold into their own operations. I was going to ask whether there had been trends over time. Um, I mean, you said we've been doing this for about 20 years and whether there was any anything consistent from that time to now, which gave some sense of how a small press could succeed. But it sounds like things have really changed a lot. 
You know, they really have changed. And I think what you really find is, you know, good execution in terms of your publishing program, um, you know, paying attention to, you know, to all the details they need to do, keeping up with trends. I mean, that's one of the things we see that, you know, some of these small presses had a little bit of a difficult time fully getting embraced in, in digital publishing and, and e-books because it just took them a little longer to have the resources to put behind, like digitizing all your backlist. Um, but nowadays, you know, any independent publisher of, of you know, any size, you know, is fully fully engaged in digital. And a number of them, you know, have pointed to, um, to that growth in digital um, for, you know, for helping them boost sales. And it wasn't that long ago when, when Borders went out of business, I remember one of the uh, small presses who was on the list that year saying, well, they had been able to offset the decline in sales through Borders because their ebook sales had, had grown a lot. So there are, I mean, you have to be flexible. You've got to be quick to respond. I think you have to have some smart people. <laughs> um, that never hurts. <laughs> running that company. And you can't, and you can't overexpand. I mean, that's, We haven't had too many uh, companies that made the list and then eventually close, Uh, but we did have one a number of years ago, quite a long time ago, who did phenomenally well, um, had some huge bestsellers, and then kind of overspent on some big titles that didn't work out and had just grown beyond their means, and before you know it, you know, they were flying for Chapter 11. Um, so it's, it's, you know, you got to live between, your, you know, in your meetings um, and, and know what works. Um, and it's okay to branch out, but, you know, do it in a, a thoughtful, you know, planned manner. And, um, you know, don't, don't exceed what, you, what your resources can really do. Well, that sounds like valuable advice for anyone. Um, thank you so much, Jim. It's always great to have you on the show. Yeah, great to talk to you about independent presses. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jim. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hello, this is Gay Talese. I'm the author of The Bridge, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Kathy Airway, the author of The Food of Taiwan. This is part of PW's Cookbooks Month, and you can find all sorts of exciting cookbooks coverage on our website. We're also going to have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 